Hello, friends. This is the AlphaList Podcast. I am your host, Toby. The goal of the AlphaList Podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This podcast is proudly presented by Sastrify. After years of growth at all costs, it's now all about efficiency. All CTOs who feel they are spending too much time and money on their tech stack should pay attention now. Sastrify, an established partner of the Alphalist CTO community, is the automated SaaS procurement solution for IT and finance teams. Sastrify's procurement experts centralize and automate the management of your SaaS subscriptions and can reduce your SaaS spend by up to 35% as well as save you up to 20 man hours per month. Minimal effort for you. Sastrify negotiates the best terms with SaaS vendors like Miro, Asana or Salesforce for existing contracts as well as for upcoming renewals. At OMR, we have already used Sastrify ourselves to significantly reduce the cost and complexity of our tech stack. Leading companies like Westwing, Adidas Rantastic and Sender are also using Sastrify to solve their procurement challenges and rapidly grow their runways. For case studies, further information on how Sastrify works, visit www.sastrify.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today I am here with, pronounced in German, Richard Socher. And Richard Socher is the founder and CEO of U.com, the AI search engine that puts you in control. That's why they, he has this great domain. And they raised 25 million, I think, in Series A funding last year. And Richard actually previously served as chief scientist at Salesforce and sold his old company MetaMind, MetaMind um, to Salesforce. And um, I think you personally reported to Mark. Is that correct? I worked with him directly. There's uh, one person between us officially who runs all of technology at Salesforce, Srini. But yeah. Okay, reporting lines are not the most important thing to touch. So, uh, but what, what was that all correct? And you, I think you were a PhD, um, a computer science PhD from Stanford. That's so right. you are indeed a nerd. <laughs> Is That's that right, correct? Yeah. I, used to, I used to teach at Stanford too for four years, eventually uh, as an adjunct professor. Um, and uh, just one addition, we raised 25 in our A uh, and 20 in our seed round earlier. Yeah. Okay, great. And And you're right now sitting in your... Uh, childhood room at home in Dresden. Uh, so right. you're also German. Um, and uh, wh when did you move over? Like, why? Why? Like, maybe we start there. Yeah. Yeah. Originally, I just wanted to work with the absolute best AI people. When I was a PhD, I, uh, during my undergrad already, starting two, 2003, I studied linguistic computer science in Leipzig. I love languages and math and programming. And so 
uh, got into that. Uh, and then I switched uh, in my master's to computer vision, but discovered uh, what at the time was called statistical machine learning and uh, pattern recognition and fell in love with it and felt like, wow, man, if you can really get good at statistical machine learning, it seems like such an amazing tool that could do so many different things. I wanted to nerd out a lot about statistics and probability and uh, linear algebra. And uh, and then during my PhD in the early days, I, I essentially, I wanted to work with the top people. So I went to the US and eventually got into Stanford after a few rejection uh, rounds um, earlier. And, uh, and just, uh, yeah, discovered at Stanford neural nets, rediscovered them, you know, they're kind of one of those methods that no one really loved, uh, for a long time. Um, and, uh, yeah, anyway, without going into too many details, uh, I found that a lot of AI at the time was kind of graduate student descent of, uh, design, defining and designing features for your AI problem. Uh, and then I thought, wouldn't it be cooler if you could really learn everything from scratch, from raw data. And, and that's kind of what we ended up doing with neural nets for natural language processing. Um, did you did you meet Sebastian there as well? He's also Stanford, right? Uh, I did, Sebastian yeah, Trun. Sebastian Thrun. Thrun. Um, that's right, yeah. We actually uh, we, we actually communicate quite a lot these days. Um, okay, cool. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a good friend of ours. Uh, we hang out together at our ranch uh, in, in the Bay Area often now. And yeah, we, we actually did overlap um, during the heyday of the AI, the Stanford AI lab, when they're still Andrew Ng full-time there and Daphne Kohler and Sebastian and Chris Manning. You know, some of those folks are still there and some of them have mostly left or don't spend as much time at the university anymore. Okay, cool. Is there like a, a detail in your personal life when you actually got attracted to computers and, and, and why? Like, I mean... Um, you started off with the with the machine learning bit and statistics, but 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 I mean, why? <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess in the very early days, um, you know, the, like the first one was probably just computer games, like for many kids, uh, right? You have like we had a very early days of Commodore, uh, Commodore sixty four, um, and and that was sort of my first computer, and then I really only got into programming uh, in the early days through web programming. Because I all of a sudden felt like, oh, wow, wait, if I can program something here, everyone can see it. My friends can immediately try it out. And so I got uh, into some some more sort of nifty JavaScript programming, or like things that can move around in the browser. And you can blink tags, logic, <laughs> you know, yeah, PHP and getting like databases going. And, and it just seemed very powerful. I worked for my mom's company. It's a real estate company. So I, I helped her kind of set up a database so she can have different um, you know, listings of, of apartments and, and houses and stuff that uh, she was selling in her real estate company and implemented that website. And, and yeah, I got more into programming actually only once I could more easily share it uh, as a kid um, during high school. And then, uh, yeah, and then during, you know, obviously once I started studying, I got more and more into it. But I wasn't, you know, to be honest, uh, I felt like in comparison to some people, I was a late bloomer. Like there's some people who are like, I started coding when I was 10 years old or something. And I really only got into it at like 16, <laughs> okay. 15, 16 or so. Yeah. Okay, cool. And um, what did you do with MetaMind then? 
So MetaMind uh, basically started at the end of my PhD. You know, I was uh, I finally got uh, an EB1A visa in the U.S. Uh, it's kind of uh, called Person of Extraordinary Ability. Uh, and before that, I was on an F1 student visa, so I couldn't work. Um, but once I got that visa, I, I basically had a bunch of folks asking me, hey, can you join us full time? I'm like, well, I kind of want to be a professor. Um, then they said, well, can you like consult for us or just do a project? And so I did some projects. And actually, one of those projects was uh, it's kind of funny. The very first project ever at the end of my PhD that I got paid for was this guy uh, who wanted me to build him a, a very fancy autocomplete that could autocomplete a lot more code, for instance. Uh, and so I basically took a recurrent neural net and I, I trained it a little bit and I said, here, this, this is probably like your solution and you're going to want to just get a ton more training data into this and make it a lot bigger. Uh, but this is kind of what you're going to want to use. And it's interesting because that is basically like GitHub Copilot now is yeah. large neural nets um, yeah. and autocomplete code. Um, but, you know, the... Uh, Here's the here's this little you know code snippet with like some first version that does something. Uh, it turns out uh, I guess there was another <laughs> another couple of years and a couple of billion more parameters um, than than the model that I had that I sent over um, that that really got it to work. Um, but yeah, so it felt like well you know there are only at the time a handful of companies that could attract some of these top people that build neural nets at the time still from scratch, you know, like C++, Python was barely coming up. Um, uh, and, uh, and I felt like this is technology that could be useful for a lot more use cases. And it felt yeah. like I should, I didn't just want to go one. I still want to go into academia, but then even I said, well, I'll postpone my faculty job for a year and, and work uh, essentially at, on this company, MetaMind, that would give neural network, neural network technology to a lot of other organizations uh -huh. and, and make it very, very easy to train. So we basically allowed you to just drag and drop some images into the web browser or text documents into the web browser. <clears throat> and then immediately uh, back out comes a neural network with like three lines of Python code or some curl command, and you can just run uh, and and have have a functioning system, and it worked out pretty well. Uh, and eventually, we actually got acquired uh, after less than two years um, by by Salesforce, where I found that man, it would have taken us a long time to scale that technology uh, in mm -hmm. terms of sales, uh, not in terms of technology, um, but in terms of really getting it into the hands of a lot of people. Uh, it took a lot longer, uh, and then during that time, I also decided maybe you know I started teaching on the side at Stanford. Uh, we did a little bit of research in a startup, and I realized, oh, teaching is fun, but maybe three months of teaching a year is, is enough. Yeah. Because it does get a little repetitive, and so I ended up not becoming a full-time uh, faculty. Uh, and then at Salesforce, we scaled the research team massively there. That was super fun, and we had a ton of impact on real products. So. Right, right. Uh, like Salesforce has quite a sales engine, I guess. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No pun intended. Yeah, there is a force behind that. that yeah, sales. I can imagine. Um how much like if if you if you look back um i guess when you started off infrastructure was like still a key problem right uh, for 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 machine learning i mean these days it's kind of um kind of kind of easy uh but back then like the term ml ops wasn't really invented um i guess and um it was it was hard to bring it live i guess 
Like That's how- right. Yeah. I mean, in the early days of MetaMind, there's literally no PyTorch or TensorFlow yet. Yeah. And so it took a long time to like, you had to, in some cases, do some of the math yourself to like figure out your gradients and backpropagation and so on. So that's where it started. Um, and we build our own frameworks, try to make them fast and be deep down in CUDA kernels and C++ with the team. And it was like not, not very easy. Uh, and of course, this has gotten so easy. In fact, we call it the software 2.0 stack now, a little bit after Andre Karpathy's um, blog post and this new software 2.0 stack. Things of software are very differently, right? There's data set collection, um, then data cleaning, data labeling, then uh, choosing the right uh, AI model, uh, implementing it possibly from papers or taking an open source one from Hugging Face, mm-hmm. and potentially fine tuning it, uh, things like weights and biases. And uh, full disclosure, I'm uh, investor in both of those companies. Um, uh, and and then you know running it, watching out for distributional shift and changes over time, um, which a company like Colina would do. Uh, and and just like keeping your data sets clean and easily extractable. Um, so having nowadays LM ops is like another level of uh, ML ops. Uh, and you know there's there are great companies like vector databases like Chroma or data set sort of uh, companies like Active Loops and ML tools. Uh, and so yeah, so lots of lots of interesting uh, like uh, ZenML is, is another one of these ML ops companies that is open source and. Again, full disclosure, I have an investor in all of those, uh, all of those companies. Um, and so now through AIX, our, our venture fund. But uh, long story short, it, there's so many tools. And in some ways, MetaMind was a little, almost a little too early, which as an academic is great because then you're like, oh, wow, so visionary. You know what's happening. But as a startup founder, it's not that helpful to be too early. You want to be at the right time. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Technology. If you're too early, you can also die. As startups need to be just at the right time with the right technologies, uh, unlike academia. And so long story short, you're, you're 100% right. There's so many tools now, and each of these different uh, aspects of the new software 2.0 stack has often a unicorn associated with it at this point. Yeah, and, and right now for me, it's always a question, like, is now the time to get into 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 that stuff? Or do you even like stand on the on the on the sideline for a bit longer and and just wait until it improves a 10 axis again right um that's 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 like so weird um but if we before we 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 nerd off more there um maybe you can tell us a bit more about what 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 makes you.com special and and why did you why did you choose that direction um you you want to compete with google or Yeah. Or do we want to still? <laughs> do we want to? Yeah. Um, do we want to or do we have to? So at a very high level, uh, it started by seeing and being part of making natural language processing so much better. And you see, wow, we can now have a single model in 2018. Uh, my co-authors, Brian McCann, uh, Samin and Nitish, we invented uh, prompt engineering where you could, as input to the model, ask any kind of question Like, what is the sentiment? What is the summary? What is the translation? And a single model would respond to you. Um, and so that uh, made, us, made it very clear to us that you could do a lot better than here's a list of blue links. Yet, you know, you see that and then no one's doing it. And so that's clearly an opportunity. So to tell you, to, to answer your question, you.com is a chat first search engine that actually leverages all the latest AI. 
And as a user, if you're interested in, oh, I want to be able to generate images, or I want to have AI write my essays, or I want AI write my code, you see those features in a search engine context first on you.com. And then maybe three, six months later, you see Google and Bing uh, and others copy uh, copy those capabilities. Uh, and by those times, you know, we're, we're usually already ahead again. Um, but it is a little bit frustrating because now, you know, the big guys are copying more and more of those features. Yeah. And their marketing, of course, says, we're the first. And we're like, actually, we've already launched a, a chat model for a search engine with citations uh, yeah. last yeah. year in December. Um, and, and you're really just copying what, what we've done. And, and what were your thoughts when, when ChatGPT was released? Like, was it, ooh, this is good? Or were you already there? Or like, what, 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 what were you thinking? Yeah, of course, we, we saw that uh, earlier than, than most. And like UChat, actually, our, our sort of search chatbot with citations and stuff came out, I think, just two or three weeks after uh, ChatGPT. And uh, I think overall, it's been a positive. Uh, you know, it would have been even better if we had launched the first one and the only one, maybe. But I can tell you that before ChatGPT, whenever we innovated, too much in search, we had the majority of users come to us and say, it's a little too different to Google. And I'm so used to Google. You can't be too different. Now, we're the first to bring a Reddit app into search engines like early last year. So over a year ago now. And that, that worked. But when we, when we innovated too far away from a list of blue links with some add-ons, uh, users weren't ready for it. But that, thanks to ChatGPT, has massively changed. People are now much more open to new ways to find information online, new ways to get things done. And if you think about a Venn diagram of chat and search, there's a large overlap, but it's also even bigger. Chat is even bigger and can be even bigger than search because Obviously. the truth is you wouldn't ask Google, write me an HTML website with a commenting function in JavaScript or write me this front-end code, or like train in like a neural net um, to do named entity recognition, or any of those things, mm. you wouldn't ask that to a search engine because all you'd get back is a bunch of blue links and then you'd have to find the code. But on you.com, the answer is literally hundreds, line, hundreds of lines of code that will just be the answer. And you just copy mm. and paste mm. it with mm. a copy and paste button right there, and you're done. And so, so the, yeah, the Venn diagram uh, search is maybe not entirely a subset, but uh, certainly... There's a large overlap, uh, but chat is even bigger. Okay. Um, before we um, talk more about about those facts, like what is like just briefly as this is a technical podcast, what what is what is briefly your infrastructure? What do you need to operate a a, a search a modern search engine, uh, which is which is more powerful than Google? What what, what do you need for that? Oh boy. Um, uh, so. I, I could nerd out a little bit on that, but I also, part of me doesn't want to share too much of our stack uh, because we uh, have a lot of competition, big and small, that are literally that. trying to copy what we're can doing <laughs> every week. And there's some small copy. Whatever you can copy. disclose, yes. okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess, you know, there's some some obvious things like Databricks. Um, there are uh, big um, vector databases like Pinecone and Chroma. Um, in the back end, uh, there are some very large LMs uh, sitting on GPUs. Um, there are both like internally as well as APIs. 
for those. Um, yeah, those are some of the some of the parts of the stack that uh, are pretty crucial um, that that come up a bunch. And I, I guess you run on Google Cloud and use Kubernetes. Then <laughs> uh, we uh, we don't usually share uh, which cloud we're on, but we're not uh, not on Google. Cloud. I, I was just joking. Okay. I mean, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, sometimes. You you think oh they're the enemy, but then you know Google can also be potentially a partner in, in some ways, and uh, you know they're they're in, in technology. You would think that companies like Samsung and Apple, who are you know producing phones that are basically competitive, would hate each other and never talk. But turns out Samsung also provides a lot of the hardware pieces that go into an iPhone with their semiconductor you know. Uh, area uh, and and then they compete later on on the actual uh, phones that are being fully fully put together uh, and so yeah the we try to we try to be pragmatic but yeah and um, what is the business model of a search engine of the future like is it subscription based or or will it be subscription based or I mean, ads is kind of like feels a bit dead, right? If you if you look at Google, uh, and, and there are not many, there there won't be so many impressions uh, anymore and so many clicks. So it's a really good question. Yeah, we are actually currently uh, very focused on that. You know, to be honest, uh, until we had launched UChat. We sort of had 30% month over month growth. It was all right. But once we launched UChat, we all of a sudden had in January like 300% month over month growth and then went from a couple of 100,000 users to several millions of users. And that's when we started to really have to care about our cost to serve. <laughs> so we, we focused on that and got that under control in March. Uh, and now we're again like been very nicely organically growing. Uh, and now we have we're focused uh, solely on monetization. So uh, indeed, uh, on the one hand, people pay for chat models, but people don't pay for search. And we're a chat-based, you know, search engine. So that puts us in an interesting new category uh, that uh, really doesn't exist like that. I think all the existing search engines will add this sort of as an add-on, but they're not chat-first the way we are. And so. Uh, long story short, we will explore some private advertisement, uh, similar to DuckDuckGo that is not user-dependent, but it's only query or, I guess, nowadays conversation-dependent. Um, and, and then we will also explore subscription models uh, for various expert or add-on uh, features that, you know, even bigger models, even more complex things that, you know, cost even more money to serve. Uh, and then um, we have also now uh, had a lot of interest in APIs. So I feel like that's a little bit uh, distracting for a consumer search engine, but with all this interest and we have a lot of developers on our platform and those developers are saying, oh, I love the search engine, but I want to like use those same models for my own stuff. So we're thinking about uh, offering uh, APIs as well to, cool. to people. Great. Um... And don't you sometimes think, okay, this could be open. Um, like maybe it shouldn't be, maybe it shouldn't be belonging to a, to, to like a for-profit entity, um, like like Wikipedia or something, uh, or 
What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I actually thought about this a lot and I, I, I bring it up from time to time when I get excited. Um, but the truth is that uh, it, having an open source index is only one of the many necessary ingredients for running a search engine. Turns out you have to have all of that technology also be extremely fast and available all around the world in different data centers. And those just cost a lot of money. Uh, it's kind of like open source traditionally felt like, wow, if I have the source code, now I can just run that program on my own machine. And so having the source code was all you need. But when you think about AI, having the source code is only one thing. You need to also have the weights of the model. And then you also need to have the training data to have be able to train the model. And then you also need to actually have massively large, beefy machines to be able to even run the model at all, let alone train it. Uh, and so having just the source code is, is not, you know, it's like one quarter or one third of the equation. And so what that means is that, especially for a search engine, um, it's very hard to make it work because you just can't avoid the cost. As a pure, simple, on-prem, open source project, you get the code and then you run it yourself. Um, and that just doesn't work for a search engine. Like people mm -hmm. can't run a search engine for the entire web on, on their laptop. It's just laptops aren't big enough. Uh, and so, so that's one problem. Uh, and then, of course, you know, it's all not, not very cheap to run. Um, so I'm still kind of open. I, li I like the idea, um, but I have not yet seen how it would work financially and just project-wise. Like, and when you double-click into it, even things like Firefox, for instance, in theory, it's an open-source project, right? Yeah, sure. It's a nonprofit. Yeah. In practice, it gets 95% plus of the entire Mozilla Foundation's money comes from Google. From Google, yeah. And so if you come in and chat with them and like, hey, can we add our search engine to the list of defaults? Not even make it the default, because we know you get $300 million or something from Google for that to be the default. But just add us to the list. They're like, well, how much money are we going to get for your advertisements when we add you to the list? Not even the default option, just one of the choices. And if you don't make revenue, because um, we're currently, you know, we haven't had ads, um, we're just now starting to explore them. It's just that the conversation goes nowhere. And mm -hmm. even if you have the revenue there, it's just a very, um, it's a very sort of touchy subject for them. Because uh, if something goes wrong on that front, the entire organization loses its budget uh, from Google. And so uh, long story short, if you were like some open source project, right, and you wouldn't give them any money, no one will actually get to choose it, even in another open source, quote unquote, project that is a nonprofit. So yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of uh, intricacies uh, we're, we're continuing to learn uh, running a search engine on the financial side, the partnership side, and so on, where you realize, oh, man, you, like it's not always the best technology that will win. It will also, you know, you have to have good partnerships. You have to have strong sales and then like strong financial model that makes it all work. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, even looking at Wikipedia, like you, you brought the Firefox example, um, the Wikipedia is also... Uh, backed um and uh potentially also influenced uh through through backing right i mean it's always a question like how how open can information really be um what do you think like who will you, you just mentioned training data has to be 
paid as well and generated as well. Like who who will generate tomorrow's training data? I mean, I think it'll be mostly, you know, the world uh, and people. Um, it's kind of interesting, right? Like there's this age old saying, uh, when you're, uh, when, when the product is free, you are the product. Um, and so the internet has been mostly free. <laughs> so now the AI kind of takes all the data from the internet, um, that is publicly available, uh, and tries to learn from it. Um, and so I think, I think that will continue to happen, but then, I think where companies will be able to differentiate and build a little bit of a moat is uh, to collect interesting, new, unique data sets. Um, and, uh, and so companies will continue to collect data. And then, of course, there's more complexity. You can look into biomedical data and, you know, there it's even more unique to have your own data set. Interesting. And how how do you think online marketing can function in that world like uh, in the age of 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 search via ai so conversational search um how will i be able will i be able uh, to positively or negatively influence my my ranking or your answers like um how how will that look like yeah yeah that that's a whole new world we already have a couple of seo folks who are like reaching out and say hey how can i you know, we're seeing traffic from, from you.com, like, how, how can I influence that? The truth is right now you can't. Um, it's, very, it's even harder than it is with SEO. Uh, and, and maybe that's okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe that is part of the point. Um, I think there's also non-zero chance that in the future you may have advertising inside the answers. So the answers will be influenced in some way or another through ads um and and then you have to pay to have an unbiased like even more unbiased kind of answer than you would expect otherwise and and again if it's free you know then these llms have to earn something somehow and maybe it's just at the end it's like you might be interested in this thing and then there's a link to an ad that's that's what we're exploring right now but uh who knows yeah so i to be honest we haven't thought about it too much i think we're we're currently thinking a lot about how to monetize this just to stay alive as a company uh i, I think like really thinking this through uh, can drive you really crazy right um like thinking about truth uh and and how how it, uh, truth might look like tomorrow right um uh, like are, are you afraid of that as well a bit or um i i generally you know i think as a as a startup founder um the default uh, MO shouldn't be that you're afraid, but more that you're, you know, you're optimistic. Otherwise, it's very hard to um, stay alive uh, and and motivate it. And you have to uh, really remind yourself that every crisis is an opportunity. Every crisis is an opportunity, which is easier said uh, than uh, felt uh, in the middle of a crisis. Um, yeah, but yeah. but yeah, long story short. Um, you know, for in the beginning of when we launched UChat, uh, a lot of people first searched for themselves and their own names. And a lot of those early on were probably the single worst thing uh, that the models uh, were yeah, uh, trying to do because, you know, our model looked up the internet, like facts from the internet. And so if you're uh, Michael um, Schultz or something, then you were a chancellor and a Formula One driver and, you know, like 
whatever, a Harvard professor. And so it's just like it put together a CV from all the different Michaels uh, and all the different Schultzes that it found on the world, on the web, uh, and, and put it together. And now, you know, people are like, oh, this technology doesn't work. It's bad, blah, blah. And no, now if you look up your name more and more often, it correctly says, oh, like there are too many names with this. I can't tell you, or you probably mean this person. And then it's just like tries to stick to one of the people that is most likely the one you mean. Um, so, so there are a lot of issues, um, in the, in the limit, of course, you know, truth and, uh, and bias and so on are extremely hard. Like if someone says two people were killed in a drone strike in Yemen, how do you, like, no AI will tell you if that's true or not. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, you need to actually be on the ground, interview people and talk. And so you need to trust journalists to be out there who really try to just get at the truth of a situation. Uh, and, you know, but then of course you, you eventually get to some uh, approximations of that and there's certain uh, journalistic outlets. And if you trust them on average and you know, they will, you know, have uh, corrections if they're wrong and, you know, you, you build some kind of trust with them. Uh, and sometimes even those are, are struggling, you know, there's some examples of like the lab leak theory where for a while you were like a conspiracy nutter and then maybe it was true after all. And, and now people like even smart people don't have full consensus uh, on the situation. And in those cases, I think it'll be important. Uh, and I think actually chat models will be better, uh, in the future, uh, for, uh, at, at describing these kinds of situations and to, to expose users to different viewpoints. And I think in the limit that can even help uh, democracy and, and finding the truth. I guess it's also about the way how you express the certainty of the model, right? Um, right. Am I sure or not? Like if you ask ChatGPT for something, like it's always very to the point um, and, and, and there's no way to understand like, like if the model was really, thinking it was correct or not right um right is this like 99 or is it just like 20 uh, you don't know right right yeah we're we're working on those exact uh, kinds of issues and and uh looking forward in the next next few months to to output more and more of those like features uh, to help you understand the the veracity and, and certainty of it uh, but it's non-trivial and It's even especially worse. for texts, right? I mean, for texts, like uh, understanding, like is this is this a real text or not? Like right. it, it's it's it, it's not possible, right? Like or not really? It, I mean, again, in the limit, it's not possible, but you can do approximations. But yeah. the biggest thing is, if you say you're certain, then you also better be right. Yeah. And so it's even worse if you make a mistake and you're saying I'm certain this is true. And then it's not true. That's even worse than just saying it and it's being being slightly wrong. But it is something that, of course, we we continue to, to work on um, and we continue to make it better. I think in general, generative AI, sort of a model I, I uh, developed, is very good when you can, when it will take you a long time to create an answer, an artifact, a piece of code, an image, and so on. But it's very quick to verify Uh, its usefulness or correctness. And so when you ask uh, an AI model to write you some front-end code, for instance, you just copy and paste it, rerun it, and you're like, this looks the way I want it to look, and you're done. And so it would could have taken you an hour to write it, but it only takes you five seconds to run it, 
and then see if it works or not. Um, and so uh, what that means, is, same with images, right? It could take you hours to draw an image, but you look at it and you're like, this looks like crap or this looks beautiful and, and this is what I want. And so you're done. Uh, and for for facts, I think they, they fall in between. Sometimes we give you a nice citation uh, to that fact. And if that is a particularly important fact, you can just quickly verify it um, on this in the citation link or on the web links that we still show you on your com on the right. Um, and, and then it is there. Sometimes the facts that it describes are a little bit harder and then the use cases are, are less obvious. And then oftentimes what that means is you probably want to rely on the links, which we still show you on the right, just like your old school search engine. Okay. Okay. So you can still verify the sources essentially. And that, right. uh, becomes maybe like part of your, your, your journey then, or your job. Um, speaking of jobs, um, I mean, yeah, obviously, like that's lots lots of discussion, especially after after ChatGPT, uh, which made it very accessible, like made AI finally accessible, like everyone was talking before, but now it's accessible. Um, how do you think this will change the job world? Like, will it even lead to our brains being like partly um, not, not 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 unused, but having like just different content? Like, I mean, I remember my dad with that that huge atlas when we uh, mm -hmm. drove on vacation like I, I don't know if you had the same experience like we always had that huge atlas and now now nowadays when i visit my dad he asked me like how did you get here <laughs> um and i i mostly don't know um most of the times um like how do this how does how, do, how will this um change our thinking um, and the usage of our brain from your perspective? And yeah, second question, job world, maybe we do that later. Yeah, so I think I think people over-index on the importance of skills uh, that they had and needed when they grew up. Yeah. And the truth is like, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I find it also funny. Uh, some people are sort of navigationally challenged, <laughs> how I like to say it sometimes. And, you know, they couldn't for the life of them navigate uh, without Google Maps um, or something. Uh, and uh, part of me is like, oh, man, you would be lost. But the truth is, like, most people who can navigate uh, with a map would also be lost without a map in a forest because they don't know to, how to use the sun and so on. They just kind of use a map and they use street signs and whatnot. But how important is it to, you know, be able to find your way out of a forest these days. Like it's, it's not, not been that important for most people for, for many decades. Um, and so, uh, you know, skills that are helpful over time change and through industrial revolution and through automation, uh, things change. Most people would not understand how to replicate a toaster. It's actually a fun thing I like to do on a long drive sometimes, which is like, play a game where you get dropped 2000 years in the past and now you have all the knowledge you have you just time travel by accident 2000 years into the past now what do you do how do you how do you try to help humanity speed up its technological progress the truth is most people have no clue how to make electricity how to transfer electricity how to you know do a lot of basic things uh, and so long story short um as a long answer to skills will change Certain skills will be less important. New skills will be more important. And I do think kids will have, like education will have to change. Uh, you have to really update the curricula for kids. You have to ha 
teach them how to program. I've been telling that to a lot of politicians. Um, programming is, will is have programming. To. Is that still important? It is hundred percent still important in the yeah. same way as you know. You might say translation isn't important, or learning a language isn't important because you can just use a translating algorithm, like a translation algorithm now. But the truth is, you still need to have a live conversation, and you can't just be like, "Oh, he's saying that." It's translating it, and then you talk back to it. Of course, that will get faster and faster, and it will incorporate speech and, and everything. But you still need to be able to think. And so, when you think about concretely generative AI. It goes back to this this model uh, that I just came up with a few weeks ago, which is you might not have to generate as much content, but you still need to have the judgment to know if the content is any good. You still need to be able to verify that the facts in it are true. Uh, and you need to still know things in order to be able to creatively recombine them. And And so, yeah, will it be as important to be able to draw nicely when AI will draw for you? No. Will it be... You know, as important to crank out simple sort of regurgitating, summarizing text, um, probably not. But it would be important to understand how to structure a good argument to convince someone in a conversation, certainly. Uh, will it be important to be able to read a text that maybe an I had written and evaluate whether it's going to convince anyone else uh, of, of some facts? I think those are all still going to be important. And those are new skills that people will have. And I guess I don't worry too much about people getting like more and more stupid um, and like sort of the idiocracy uh, movie um, that a lot of people found very sort of um, uh, present or like uh, just uh, innovative and, and sort of, um, yeah, uh, predictive. Um, you know, there is, there is a little bit of that concern um, in the longer term time horizon, but I don't think that will happen in the next like generation or two. So, um we all don't have to be afraid uh, of that. Like if, if I know Ruby <laughs> as an example, it, 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 it will be there for a while, most likely. Right. Um, you know, like AI will write some code for you, but you still yeah. need to be able to fix it and integrate yeah, 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 it. And yeah, if it's yeah. wrong, you need to find it. And if there's a bug, you need to be able to like fix it. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a ton of ways that you want to verify, you know, there's some funny signs where it is a, a Chinese hairdresser and, the new English name uh, for for the hairdresser is could not connect to a translation service. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't know anything, a single word in the English language, you will print that big sign and put it on your hairdresser, you know. Yeah, like. that's, a, that's a nice example. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, I, I also sense, see it that way. Yeah. <laughs> I also see it that way. But, but, I mean, most likely programming or it could happen that programming um, rather... Um, ends up writing specs, right? Like writing writing stories, writing acceptance criteria, and and then you get something generated. Um, I, I guess that will be popping up soon, uh, like as a new form of of no code, maybe. Um, That's right. Yeah, I think that will that will also happen. You know, like in in many ways, the abstraction layers are going to get bigger, like higher and higher, right? And you'll just yeah. be even to be more productive. You know, you don't really have to. Um, write in assembler anymore right no one no one has to um and so you just don't have to be that low level machine code instructions and and that's a good thing right like that allows us to be more productive and build higher more interesting complex systems now there will always be some people who have to be close to the metal right and build new cuda kernels or 
new kind of uh, speed speed algorithms for new kinds of hardware that keeps getting developed, but it's fewer and fewer people. Uh, it's a less and less important skill for building things. And you know, you have things like JavaScript and Node.js and um, and Swift and, and others, so that you know those will allow you to build apps more quickly and, and front end web web development things. And I think that will that will continue. And you're right. I think English will enable you to build uh, and is already able to help you build a couple of simple, quick things. But if you then want to edit them, you want to say, oh, I want this also, and I want it to be slightly different. You can keep trying to explain it to an algorithm, but at some point you will have diminishing returns and you'll actually be faster if you just knew how to do it rather than keep sort of iterating, say to the algorithm, oh, but like make the box just like two pixels to the left. Oh, wait, but not <laughs> if the screen is this big, then like, uh, then just make the button disappear. Oh, wait, but mm, like- Change the margin, change phone, the margin, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, and at some point you realize, wait, it's probably just better if you had explicitly been able to, to program that. And then at that point you'd be faster. And, and so, but you know, you get again, a quick version of it, a default. And then if you know how, what you're doing, you know how to code, you'll be able to modify it and get it to a really good end result even more quickly. Mm, mm, mm. And um, right now, if I open up Twitter in the morning, um, I, I kind of see this huge AI dust storm um, yeah. that I, I guess many, many of us uh, are, are facing these days. And um, I think like many CTOs out there um, are supposed to have an opinion on that. Like, is it, is it, something we can leverage are we doomed uh, is it an opportunity uh, what, what 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 would you recommend to navigate through that dust storm uh so i do think twitter is actually a useful place uh for staying up to date in ai i think there is a little bit of hype but the way i think about it is indeed uh you are Like there, there's sort of different waves of AI. You know, some people it it feels like for them, uh, it's been for for some people it feels like oh this is, has come out of nowhere, right? You haven't had like AI just didn't work, and now all of a sudden it's it's super big. But the truth is there have been tons of improvements over the last decade where all of a sudden speech recognition worked, and then computer vision and object recognition started to work, uh, and then translation started to work. Like no translator who gets paid per word and not per hour is not using AI. Mm -hmm. you know, they're all using AI to get a raw translation and they're fixing things up. And, and now with generative AI and, and general sort of, excuse me, chat models and, and generative image models, it's, it's become even more close to, to people, even closer and visceral and sort of obvious uh, to, to people how much this can change things. And so, so yeah, I think, um, I think it's going to be a really, really exciting time. People should stay up to date, uh, but As each wave comes, the swell is rising. Like the capabilities are getting better behind that big wave, mm -hmm. but maybe at the very top of uh, inflated expectations, um, there will be a bit of a letdown because you know AI cannot yet fully program itself. Like auto GPT mm -hmm. types of things are a little bit overhyped, but that technology, I think, in the next six to you know 24 months, will do some pretty incredible things. And will be able to improve itself more and more, and and I'm I'm very excited about the future. I think humanity is kind of in the middle of a, an exponential increase in capabilities, and I don't think that exponential will last forever. Most exponentials in technology uh, usually flatten out and become an S curve at some point, but 
we don't know how long that uh, that exponential growth is going to continue. Um, and and I'm very excited for it. I think long term, no one's going to look back and be like, oh yeah, I wish I could, um, you know, do radiology like analysis like every day nonstop. I think it'll be cooler if I just explain to an AI what I'm doing, have it read the textbook. And then do it for me. And you know, this is not going to happen overnight. We we still continue to need radiologists, and we probably will always need them. Um, I think the way I think about it, if there are hundred jobs uh, and hundred people doing something, those hundred people will not get replaced entirely by an AI, but they will often, you know, different industries have different time frames and so on, but they'll probably get replaced by ten people that use AI mm-hmm. rather than you know. Well, all like a hundred, like zero people, and only mm. AI. Mm. Uh, and so, I think that that will be exciting. And just like you know, 150 years ago, over 90 percent of people worked in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That, for no sure. one looks just... back and says, "Oh, you know, it'd be cool if we just worked with our hands all day in the heat, in the cold, in the fields." Like yeah. no one, no one, no one says that now. But yeah. you know, at the time Very when that, the big tractors coming, those big tractors are a thousand times stronger than you are, yeah. right? And if you just stood in their way, they would crush you. You're like, oh man, that's really scary. Like overlord tractor train, whatever, <laughs> right? Maybe you should. And then people were scared. Like yeah. big trains are scary first time you see it. Yeah. And so, but long term, everyone likes the technology. Everyone loves convenience. Uh, and simplifying lives. And now people are doing, I think, more interesting things than working in the field. And I think we will do even more interesting things 100 years from now. Obviously, obviously. So I guess a good strategy is to um, get comfortable with it, right? Um, Like, especially as a a CTO then these days. That's right. Um, What what do you think about, like, there are so so many businesses popping up, many startups, like, there, there are many bootstrappers who just these days use like open AI APIs um, and build simple stuff or more complex stuff. Um, and it seems that it's harder to have a moat as a business. So um, how, how do you think about that? Like, is it, is everything just commoditized then? Like in a few months or how, how do you think about that? Yeah, so I think, I think at some point probably LMs are themselves more of a commodity and my strong hunch is that uh lms are going to be kind of like databases you know you Mm -hmm. sometimes may need an oracle to have a million uh queries a second and it needs to be super fast and it needs to be very reliable and it's just massive requirements and then you just need a very large very powerful database Um, but a lot of people just download some MySQL database, um, which you know is the Alpaca Llamas uh, open source models of the world, and then you just hack up your own website and and build it. And so uh, I think the LM might not be the differentiating factor, but just like which database you use isn't a differentiating factor, you still need to use one, and you can still do a lot of cool stuff with it. And, and I think that that will continue to to be right. Um, and there will be new kinds of modes of users and communities and training those LMs on interesting tasks, getting more and more data about how to do things. Um, and, and yeah, new kinds of modes will, will arise in, in the future. Okay. Okay. So I still have three questions for you. So we shortly come to the end. Um, from your perspective, talking about tomorrow, 
what's keeping you awake at night? Like, is there something that um, you think uh, will will lead to the next wave of disruption? Is there anything like crazy technological that you right now see where like you tell everyone about uh, that it's like really revolutionary? I mean, I think you you don't have to go too far. You just love LMs, and and there are we were in the middle of that revolution. And then there are a few things that I tell everyone internally in the company about, but I, I don't really want to tell everyone else outside the company uh, what I tell tell those folks inside the company. And so so there's a lot to expect there. Like yeah. models think, will like, get bigger, stuff like that. Or well, yeah, they, those are the obvious things. They get yeah. multimodal. Like we we had the first LM that will output graphs. And tables and, and things like that in inside uh, a, a large language model, and that is now also being copied by the big guys. So you know how quickly we can continue to innovate and stay ahead of the big guys. So users at some point realize, oh wow, yeah, I do see the future from you.com three to six months before I see it with the big guys in some like closed demo and, and whatnot um, or closed beta. Uh, will will continue to be something that that will keep me up for for the coming future. And uh, when do you expect AJI? I think we just don't know. Uh, I think people have uh, both in terms of the fear as well as the excitement um, uh, inflated expectations. The truth is uh, no one's really working on it. Anyway, I could talk about it for a long time, um, but I would put it somewhere between 30 to 200 years. 30 to 200 years, okay. Yeah, be, be, because the release of, of, of uh, ChatGPT kind of led to the, to, to the general thinking that it's rather five years than 30 years or 200. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is a lot of, yeah, a lot of people think that. I actually have a, a, a bet that, um, I think I've won, I need to look up when the date was, but about five years ago, I had a bet with one of the OpenAI founders um, uh, and he thought they're going to have AGI already. Um, and we have zero of the three requirements fulfilled and all three need to be fulfilled for him to win. Okay. Uh, and so, so yeah, I think, I think people are a little bit too optimistic. Um, but it also then kind of, you double click on it and it's like, what's your definition of AGI? And the truth is you don't need AGI to automate 80% of jobs. Like, you just have a system that predicts the next byte pair encoding. It has no sense of what a word is. It has no conceptual sort of sense um, uh, of, of itself, of uh, what it means to be alive, uh, and, and so on. And you can have a huge amount of impact of all of humanity with just very, very strong AI that isn't fully generalized, self-conscious, super intelligent, can actually then just like read all the physics books and then like, suddenly figure out uh, uh, what particles are actually the reality, right? And then set up and build an entire new large hydrogen collider and run the actual right experiments and then bring physics forward. Like, good luck with that. That will take a lot longer uh, than people think. So as a last question, I still have a little surprise for you. Um, Mark Benioff of, of Salesforce told me about a little Easter egg that you personally built into the Einstein engine um, as uh, like your your leftovers at Salesforce are called. Your your product is called is being called now. And it's 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 a feature that you have to 
be able to to program Apex um, to to use it, and it's called the Time Machine, <laughs> the Einstein on your phone. <laughs> Thanks, um, and um, it's a it's a special package that um, actually allows you to really travel back in time. Uh, just back, not forth. Um, and and um, I prepared like a little experiment, uh, fire up my good old JetForcer IDE um, and um, just hit run on the code I prepared before. And now we literally travel back in time to August 2014, uh, the year you graduated from Stanford and uh, kicked off MetaMind. Um, and we now observe young Richard coding a little um, or coding a lot. Um, and you now have the chance to whisper something into young Richard's ears. What would it be? Um, probably to continue doing what you're doing, because um, I'm very happy of, of how life turned out, uh, but probably think more about large language modeling um, as one of the tasks that you should train an AI with. So not just a lot of supervised multitask learning, not just a single model for all of NLP, but one that just does large language models more. Um, and to have even more conviction that that is right. Because I, I had uh, in, from 2014 to 2018, I, we had the best large language models in the world. Like we called them pointer models, which was sort of a precursor to transformer models. And we just didn't scale them to cost $30 million for training one model. Yeah. Uh, but we should have just kept scaling. And I've told the first author um, of, of those papers, let's just scale them up and see if something interesting happens. But I didn't push it hard enough. Uh, and hard enough. I should have okay. I should have pushed uh, the, the language modeling objective even even more because ultimately full large language, like full language modeling, where you are perfectly good at predicting the next word is NLP complete and is AI complete, right? If you say, oh, the next word from, I'm in Dresden right now and I want to get back to San Francisco and I navigate all the streets and navigate all the airports and so on, it means you have a perfect world model. You have a perfect planning model. You have a perfect visual model. And you can do a lot of things. You can communicate with people who might not want to let you get the ticket anymore because you're, you know, five minutes late to the counter. Like all of these things, right? And so you realize, wow, like predicting the next word is an incredibly interesting and hard task. Um, and you can do a lot of things with it, assuming you have the right objective functions for, for it. So, Thanks a lot, Richard. Great recording. Um, many thanks. Have a safe trip home. And uh, I hope I can visit you on your ranch at a certain point in the next years. You're very welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds quite yeah. exciting. Um, so, yeah. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Thanks for your great questions. Yeah, it was a fun one. You asked, uh, you asked some questions that no one has asked before, which is getting harder and harder. So, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> great. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the AlphaList podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com 
send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say in Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.